Greetings, and welcome to the Boxing Esquire Podcast. Welcome to another edition of the Boxing Esquire Podcast. My guest on this episode is one of the most prolific managers in the sport, Mr. David McWater. David is the manager of Tiafimo Lopez, Ivan the Beast Baranchik, Charles Conwell, and many other top prospects and contenders in the sport. We had the chance to talk about his background growing up in Oklahoma and starting as an agent in the sport of basketball. We also talked about um, his time as a community board member in, in New York and a bar owner. Uh, and we also got into his uh, boxing management background and discussed his proprietary system of analytics that he uses to assess um, amateur and professional fighters, similar to uh, Billy Bean of Moneyball fame. Uh, we also discussed Baranchik's situation with the World Boxing Super Series, Tiafimo's future, as well as the other prospects on his roster. It was a fascinating conversation. I hope you enjoy. So I'd like to welcome to the Boxing Esquire podcast one of the more prominent uh, managers in the sport. Um, you know, maybe a little under the radar at this point in time, but he won't be for long because he's got one of the best uh, rosters of, of boxers that I, that I can think of. Uh, welcome to the podcast, Mr. David McWater. Hi, Kurt. Happy to be here. Awesome. 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 Great to, great to catch you. Um, Definitely, I mean, a lot to discuss. You've got a lot of great fighters, but uh, I definitely wanted to get into your uh, to your background first because you're you're a super interesting guy, um, and I don't know that everyone knows your background. So, uh, so you're originally from Norman, Oklahoma, the home of uh, University of Oklahoma. Um, I'm, I'm assuming you're a Sooners fan. I am a big Sooners fan. <laughs> I'm as, as fanatical as they come. Uh, although I I am the only member of my family. Uh, that ever went to college, pretty much, that didn't go to the University of Oklahoma. Right, so, right. That's I'm a little surprised. weird. But <laughs> and my my parents went there. All my aunts and uncles on both sides of my family, my sister, my brother-in-law, everybody, everybody would go here. Um, I did not, but you know that was just fate. <laughs> um, but you know, I grew up with the Switzers and Billy Sims and the Selman brothers and. You never get that out of your blood. You know? Right, right. So, you know, just great teams, and it continues to this day. You know, they made it to the to the Final Four this year. Um, it's obviously Yeah, and I, I think we're going to have our third straight Heisman next year now that Jalen Hurts is transferred in. Wow. Do you think he's on the level of uh, Mayfield and, and Murray? Yeah, I mean, you know, two years ago, people, a lot of people said he was better. I mean, two years ago, Murray was just another transfer. Uh, you know, had been a big high school star, and Jalen Hurts was SEC Offensive Player of the Year. Right, right. So, I mean, he's definitely in their league. Obviously, those are super special kids that I love more than life itself. But um, he's definitely in that league, yeah. I mean, if he, if he had transferred anywhere, I think he would have been one of the three or four top guys <laughs> for it. And, you know, if he's going to go to Lincoln Riley in his factory – Right, you gotta gotta pump up his odds, some, you know. <laughs> yeah, it's um, gonna definitely gonna be interesting. Definitely gonna be interesting. But Oklahoma, I mean, I guess you know, as you were growing up, maybe Sean O'Grady was big there. But were, were you a big uh, boxing fan growing up? Yeah, absolutely. So my and and so my grandfather liked Muhammad Ali, mm. and it was a big deal for him when there was Muhammad Ali fight, which of course most Americans did. You know, those were. 
those were epic cultural events that everybody watched. Um, but then my dad, my dad wasn't really athletic because he had one eye. And um, so he was always trying to take me to things to sort of make me feel better. We would go to 89er games and stock car races. And he started taking me to Sean O'Grady fights. And that was it, man. The bubblegum kids, you know. And the great thing was the bubblegum kid fought every week. So you didn't, you know, it wasn't like today. You didn't have to wait five months to see him again. Every week you went up there and saw him knock somebody out. And he went wild and thought, gee, I could be the bubblegum kid someday. <laughs> and, and he wasn't a whole lot older than us. You know, when I was, I was 10 or 11 when he's running these fights, he's 17. Right, you know? right. I mean, people forget he had 50-something fights when he was 16 or 17 years old and fought for the title at 16 or 17. If, if his dad had been normal, which God bless him that he wasn't, I'm not picking on him for it, but in a normal scenario, Sean O'Grady would have been on the Olympic team. Like, in, in like, 76, you know. Not, I mean, Absolutely. he already had a billion fights by then. Absolutely. You know? Yeah, yeah. He, if, uh, but, yeah, I love Sean O'Grady. Oh, my God. That, that was our guy. <laughs> so, eventually, you decided to uh, to, to bust out and, and come to New York, and you went to NYU uh, in the mid to late 80s um, okay. and uh, majored in politics and history. Uh, it's interesting. <laughs> you said that uh, I see in, uh, in in one of your bios that uh, that you started representing athletes at NYU, and it was in the sport of basketball. You want to talk a little bit about uh, what you're doing? I was a basketball junkie in high school. It's pretty much the only thing I cared about, and um, I mean, I just lived for it. And so I played at this really competitive gym that a lot of college players, you know, a lot of the XOU guys played at. And here and there I got to play on this AAU team with them. And one time the scouts had came and I met them and got their phone numbers because I never got to play. And uh, so uh, back then, you know, there was no, forget about the internet. There weren't even fax machines in 1983, right? <laughs> 84 when I started this. And so it was really a who you knew business. So, I, you know, I'm just calling these two guys, and my original clients were just guys from Oklahoma, Oklahoma Christian, my little school up there, that, you know, had nowhere else to go, and knew I was a smart kid and decided to take a chance. And then I got a kid named Kenny Orange, who would have been a 10th-round pick. The NBA draft used to be much longer. Right. He'd been a 10th-round pick by the Bulls out of Oklahoma Christian College. He played at Star Spencer High School. But anyway, I got him a tryout with the Long Island Knights of the USBL. It was a new minor league. And he made the team, so now he's in this minor league. And the Rhode Island Gulls had Manute Bull, the seven foot seven kid from the Sedan, wow. which was a really big deal. Manute had just came to America. He spent a year at Bridgeport University and dropped out. And so they are start opposing centers in this All Star game at the USBL, which was on the sort of newfound international, um, uh, what you call TV? What was that called? Uh, satellite TV. Hmm. You know, it was sort of new then, right? So the game gets shown on satellite TV, and overnight, every team in the world called me. To get, uh, so uh, Kenny Orange destroyed my new goal. Wow. Scored 32 points, had 11 rebounds, blocked his shot. Wow. Uh, it, was night, it was the best night of Kenny Orange's life. <laughs> and um, everybody in the world called me wanting Kenny Orange. And I made him a great deal right off, in, uh, and I think get where in Italy. It's been 35 years. Um, and he never paid me anyway, so to hell with him. But uh, <laughs> your first lesson that, in real business, right? 
Right. And so I said, uh, well, you know, I'm, a, I'm an agent out of New York. You know, I'm just bullshitting him a little bit. Said, I'm an agent out of New York. It's so excited and impressive. I said, I represent lots of guys who you'd want. And one of the first big ones, there was a team in Paris that wanted Keith Edmondson, who had been like a lottery pick for the Hawks. Three years into his career. And so I said, yeah, let me, let me do it. So I called Purdue Sports Information. I said, I'm an agent from New York. Um, I got a job for Keith Edmondson. You know, can I get his phone number? And they want those guys to have jobs. So they're like, hell yeah. So they gave me his phone number, and I called him, and I said, I'm an agent from New York, and if I'm your agent, I got a job in Paris for 120000 And he said, you're my agent. <laughs> and then it just exploded. But by, the, by my – well, I had to take off my sophomore year, and that year I placed over 200 guys all over the world. Um, and I was more lower-ended because I was starting out, but I had way more – I had way more actual guys than anybody. Wow. I had – the Philippines, all over the world. Wow. And I did it for a long time until I made a lot of money off Daryl Dawkins <laughs> when I sent him to Torino, Italy. And I had to use a, because of his legal problems he had with the NBA, he had to have an NBA agent sign off on the deal. And I used this wonderful man named Steve Zucker who represented Deion Sanders and Jim McMahon and some people back then. And... Um, he tried to buy me out and start a New York office, and I probably should have taken him up on that, but, you know, the hubris of the young. I thought, ah, what do I need you for, you know? <laughs> I just made all this money. The week I graduated college, I made all the money. I thought, I'll be fine. And then, of course, the fax machine came out a week or two later, and uh, in no time, the big guys knew everybody in the world, and they just wiped me off the face of the earth. <laughs> oh, man. And, uh, so, wow. And I saw, you know, I had having all the money from uh, Dawkins was a bit of an opiate, and... You know, so I probably didn't fight as hard. Like today, if something like that happened, I would fight. Right. Then I was kind of like, oh, there's tons of stuff I can do. I've got money. You know, I started doing other businesses. And I, I regret that, though, to this day. I wish I had stuck it out. I, I think, you know, I'd be one of the biggest NBA agents there is now. Uh, uh, although, I don't know how fun that is. The NBA is a hard place to work now. Yeah, yeah. Unless you're like a really big fish. It's, it's, there's definitely a lot of, it seems like, barriers to entry. They keep making more of them for the for the uh, agents. Um but it's interesting. Well, they got that rule, you know, they can fire you in 15 days, so you're constantly recruiting your own guy. Right, right, exactly. So it never is. Exactly, there's no binding contracts, uh, right, right, and get rid of you at right. any time. Crazy. So, basically, one of the uh, one of your side ventures uh, turned into something a little more full-time, it seems. Um, you, you opened your first tavern in 1992, is that right? In yeah, New York City? that's right. And I was... Um, I started going on Tuesdays. They had all the foreclosure auctions, you know, and I would go to those and just buy the stuff nobody wanted. You know, people were there to buy the company's machinery. I'd buy the stuff by the machinery, you know, and then I would flip it the same day. And I had a little crew of guys and I, a few times I had also bought the entire restaurant and then I would flip it. What I would do is actually, there was, everybody thought the Lurie side was a ghetto then, but I could tell it was changing. And so I would, uh, I would lease it from the landlord who would usually be there. And then I would flip it to somebody else, but I would flip it with a sublease so that I made a little money on the rent also. And now the landlord, I had that connection with him because I'm actually the one paying him the rent. And I did that three or four times and thought I was a genius. And then I opened uh, one that I kept and realized it was way more money in keeping them. So, <laughs> so uh, that started that whole process. 
That's interesting because uh, I came to the city in like 1990 and I was like right out of college. I didn't have a lot of money. So uh, when I wanted to head out, I always headed down to the Lower East Side because, you know, the beers were cheaper and the music on the jukebox was pretty oh, good. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, that seems to have been well, my, it, your philosophy. With, yeah, I was going to say, it seems to be, that was your philosophy, you know, cheap, cheap beers and, and good jukebox, right? That's that is one hundred percent. We uh, I was the dive barking, and to this day, you know we have we have a great jukebox, and um, where our price points way below everybody else now. I mean now it's ridiculous. <laughs> you know, now people charge fifteen, sixteen dollars for a cocktail. We charge eight or nine for it. So, wow. Uh, um, there's not many of us left, and unfortunately, more and more of us get gentrified out every year. But um, there's a few. Yeah, can you can you tell uh, you know people who might want to come to New York City what uh, what establishments uh, you can recommend or which ones you're still uh, part owner? Well, the ones I still run are Doc Holidays, right. which has uh, always been the best country bar in New York City, and, and actually was once voted Stuff Magazine, which was a big deal once, I guess. Uh, they picked us the best dive bar in America. Wow. Um, and that's on Avenue A and 9th. And then on Avenue A between 1st and 2nd, we have the Library Bar, which is more of sort of a musician, uh, dropout, poet-type, punk rock place. It's very cool. Nice. Uh, and then we have Milano's Bar, which was my first sort of preservation thing. It's a bar that's been there over 100 years uh, in what used to be Little Italy on Houston between Mott and Mulberry. And Tommy Milano, when I first came to New York, was one of the first people that kind of cared about me, thought I was smart. I would go, I would stop at his bar and have a beer. And, and um, he just took a liking to me and would let me bartend here and there and stuff like that. And so I kept that to preserve it. And then later, uh, after I sold most of my bars, I bought a place called uh, BBA for um, sort of the same reason. The two owners were ex-partners of mine years ago. This was their first bar and their dream baby. And they both died in separate accidents within like a year or two. Oh, wow. And, um, the heirs came to me and were like, hey, can we do something like we did at Milano's? You know, will you buy it and keep it the same? And I said, absolutely. Um, and we've had a lot of fun with that. I mean, it's been um, it's been really great. Like, they, they did build, those two guys, they were real uh, visionaries. And they built a, um, it's a great community of people. I mean, their customers are really interesting. It's the dog lovers bar. You know, everybody that's got a great dog comes in there. And, <laughs> uh, and, and everybody that loves fancy beers which I don't always get, but that's a real community and they're pretty cool people. So yeah, it's been a lot of fun. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. Well, that kind of led to you uh, going to the community board in uh, in Manhattan, right? And you, you did uh, a lot of work on uh, the Lower East Side and the East Village to kind of make sure it uh, it didn't get too, too gentrified, <laughs> right? Yeah, and that ended up being the main thrust of what I did. You know what happened in I guess it was 95. I, I, I wouldn't say I've become a hedonistic, but I, I left a lot of my sort of beliefs and leanings, you know, because I, I was doing really well and being successful, and, and I was just kind of becoming all about me. You know, I was 29 years old, you know how it is. And this woman on my block, Margarita Lopez, it was just a firebrand. She ran for city council, and she really inspired me. You know, she really got me. My mom had always preached about service. And Margarita really got me into that, you know, fired back up. And we got her elected by the thinnest of uh, amounts against the machine candidate. And, um, you know, so I kind of worked with her. And then in 99, 
really over bar issues, which was not what I wanted to be my focal point, but really over that, the Manhattan Borough President appointed me to um, QB Board 3. And then shortly after my mom died in 03, I ran for chair. And then it was this chair that we did the Lower East Side rezoning. And then after I stepped down, which the Lower East Side rezoning, uh, maybe the thing I'm most proud of in my life. I mean, I feel like we stopped NYU and the big developers right at 3rd Avenue. Um, if, awesome. if we hadn't done that, I don't know that you'd really recognize East Village anymore. They were just tearing down buildings so fast and building towers. And, and you know, it's not just the aesthetics of it. Every time they do that, uh, people get displaced. Right. You know, there's, they, they, they don't just come in and hand people a bunch of money to leave. Maybe once in a while, but very rarely. Most of the time they harass the hell out of them or they use some, you know, they say, oh, we're going to build a family home here. Everybody has to leave, which is like a little loophole. And then a couple of years later, they, you know, apply for a hardship grievance on that and build whatever they wanted. So, you know, most of these people get scammed out of their home. And I was not down with that. So uh, I'm really proud of that. But then after I stepped down, um, I became the housing chair. And we started tackling the Seward Park urban manure area, which was uh, this big swath of land south of Delancey that had... Um, been torn down in the late 60s for urban renewal and then the two communities on either side of Delancey had fought for 45 years, 40 years about what should go there and um, so it had always been a contentious vote and I'd always had this vision that if you could just make people, so if you kind of rope-a-dope people is what I used to say, you could just get people in there and, and take out all the anger and all the anxiety and just bore them to death for a while, right? And get them to work together you could make a deal. Right. And right. So that's kind of what I did. I start uh, in the committee. I started having these hearings about it, but for the longest time, all you were allowed to do was say things you would like to see there. And you weren't able to comment on anybody else's. And, you know, you could say, I want the new Yankee stadium to be there. And nobody could say anything. <laughs> and we just put them on butcher paper and people got so bored. I mean, it went on for months. And then at the right moment, uh, I'll, I'll never forget uh, one of the one of the leaders on the side made a joke, and the the leader from the other side started laughing. And I thought we've got him. You know? <laughs> and so then we started talking about ways that we could make a deal that would make everybody happy. And, and I, my proudest thing that I did as community board chair with these two major things is they both passed with absolute consensus, 100%. This was no winner loser vote. We passed the committee, we passed the community board, we passed the city council, we passed the borough board, and the mayor signed off on it. All of that. There was never a dissenting vote. And that is really hard to do. Absolutely. <laughs> um, Absolutely. That's amazing. But, That's amazing. but that, was, that was what I was always trying to do. Is I felt like you know, a, commu a community board is a recommendatory agency. So your, your, your currency is how valuable your recommendation is. And if all of your votes are 22-21, what does that really mean? It just means you've got a split community. Right. So I always thought, look, we've got to try to build a consensus. You can't, you can't have winners and losers at a community board. You've got to find something that the entire neighborhood agrees on. So that, and that was an exciting part of my life, and I loved it. But um, it, it just became too time-consuming, and it was, it was just too much. And my wife and I were trying to have children, and uh, I just, you know, it was over. Well, and those issues are so heavy, too. I mean, I can imagine it's just really stressful trying to get things done. Well, like and that. the people, for whatever reason, I was never forgiven for my profession down there. And uh, so that was, um, 
you're that was always frustrating. You're always, you know, I, always the bar guy. <laughs> yeah, the, the, the bar owner is uh, is controversial down there because we've become oversaturated with bars, and I get that. Um, and you know, the, the irony is, of course, oversaturation of bars hurt my business. It didn't help it. Right. Uh, but somehow I would always get blamed for it, even though I didn't support it. And and any objective look at the math will show you know that when I was in power, there were less licenses, and, and not that I was trying to hurt licenses either. I'm fairly ambivalent. The truth is, state liquor authority makes those decisions, and so you would have these huge wars at community board. You know, they got people really excited and cost uh, businessmen lots of money. And the truth was, maybe one out of 500, the liquor authority actually listened to our recommendation. So, you know, I always felt like it was just so much wasted energy and you know hatred that I, I thought a lot of it was pointless. Um, Absolutely. Well, at a certain point, you stepped down, and uh, and that's when uh, you had the epiphany to to get into the the great sport of boxing. So, uh, uh, right. I I had read that uh, one of your mentors was someone from my uh, hometown of Erie, Pennsylvania, Mister Don Elbaum. How did you uh, how did you run into Don? So, in the early nineties, Don's son Kip worked for me at Doc Holidays. And he you know, came Kip. Office I, it's I, so funny. Kip, Kip came yeah. up in my last interview. I, I, I interviewed uh, Eric no Botcher. Way. Yeah, I, I interviewed Eric Botcher, and Kip uh, was working with a, a an Erie promoter. Uh, it was a Don Prishak, and Kip actually used to manage. Sure. Yeah, Kip used to manage my brother's punk rock band in Erie, the X Whites. So yeah, <laughs> that was that. Would, that would be Kip. Nobody knows more about punk rock music than he still does. <laughs> by the way, he's older than I am. But he is still a punk rock kid. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, I actually listened to the Botcher thing. I'm sorry I missed that. Eric's one of my favorite people in boxing. Um, and so I listened to that podcast, but I uh, I didn't remember that part. Yeah, Kip was working for me at Doc's, and he came to my office one day, and I had a picture of Sugar Ray Robinson and Bobo Olsen fighting mm. behind my desk. Um, I had bought it somewhere, you know, just really liked it. And he says, you're a boxing fan? I said, yeah. He goes, my dad's this famous promoter. And so that, and we went to um, the Blue Horizon. And I was like, oh, man, I got to get back in this. And so, you know, I would tag along with Don for years there, you know, to stuff and, you know, anything I could do and try, you know, try to be involved in it. But my own business was growing so fast. And, and of course, for a lot of the 90s, I was also playing poker every night at the Mayfair. (laughs) So that took a lot of time. Right. And... So I never had the chance to really get even and then it, it, it get, you know, really involved. And then in 2012, you know, when I sold so many of those bars, I was just going to retire. And I gained a lot of weight, watched every gun smoke in one year and thought, <laughs> well, that was fruitless. So um, I decided, you know, you've got the time. Let's, let's, let's do the boxing. And, right, right. And so- I just jumped in. That's awesome. So you formed Split Team Management. What, where does the name come from? The split T is the offense that Bud Wilkinson brought to the University of Oklahoma football team when he turned the program around. <laughs> uh, uh, I've just always liked it as a name. I, I, when I was a kid, I always said I'm going to buy a ranch one day and name it the split T, but um, obviously I never did. But yeah, that's just it's just a thing from Oklahoma football. All my companies have some reference to Oklahoma football in them, that, pretty much. That is awesome. That is awesome. That's awesome. 
Now, another article I read a couple years ago, uh, they said that you had developed a proprietary software that uses statistical analysis to determine which prospects are most likely to become world champions, that you were trying to become like, you know, do, do it like Moneyball and, and Billy Bean. Um, right. Um, is, it, is this, is, do you still use software or is that something, did it, did it go out the window? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> oh, no, no, no. I swear by it. We, um, I was a Bill James fan in high school and started doing my first little studies and stuff. And, and even in boxing stuff, I, I first started inventing this boxing game. I have like a, like a Stratomatic boxing. Right. That, and I think it's perfect now, but I started doing it with just a ring magazine guide in, uh, eighties in high school. And, uh, and I had every kind of game. I, you know, I invented horse racing games, whatever, whatever Avalon Hill wouldn't sell me, I would invent. <laughs> and, um, so I've been doing baseball research for 35 years, tons of stuff. And, um, I thought it's one of the reasons I chose to go into boxing instead of anything else was I felt like it was the last frontier for analytics. Nobody was doing it. Um, and as I've learned now, nobody's even scouting much less uh, doing analytics. Right. So I felt like, you know, that would be a huge leg up if I could do something like that. So uh, I've done you know, just dozens and dozens of studies, uh, all of various amounts of value, you know, depending on how you look at them. But uh, we've also sort of melded them together to come up with a formula that predicts the likelihood of a kid in a neutral situation, right? Because we're basing on where he was as an amateur. Um, so, you know, it's promoter neutral, trainer neutral, right over, uh, of fighting for a world title, which is sort of the benchmark we use for having been successful. Um, and which I know doesn't always work, but you got to pick something. Um, and we also did the study to find out sort of what all of the major promoters over the years, sort of what their average was of debuts they signed. And it came anywhere from, I think the low was like 8.4% to the high was top rank, which was like 12.7, 12.8%, something like that. And a uh, percent of their guys fought for world titles that they signed as debuts. So, you know, they're batting, teams are batting 85 to 125. Right, um, right. We now try, we now try to sign guys that are 300 or better on the thing. Hmm. If I sign somebody that's below 300, there's a, uh, as a debut, as a debut, I mean, you know, we'll sign some veterans because uh, they're veterans. But all of our debuts score remarkably high. And in the um, 2016 Olympic trials, there were nine guys that scored over 50%, and we got uh, four of them. So oh, we were excited good. about that. And none of, none of those guys have lost yet. Wow, so, and and the guys we lost, we mostly lost the fathers and stuff. We didn't really lose them like the other big managers, but um, yeah. So we, we we still, I swear by it. Um, you know, when when a lot of people didn't want Teofimo Lopez, I, he scored sixty three percent on mine. Which you know, like I said, that's promoter neutral. Now that he's the top rank, you know, even if he hadn't been so much better, you can pretty much double that percentage by being with top rank. You know, increase it by fifty percent at least. Right. Um, you know, and, and having the platform, you know, even as great as Top Rank was, adding the ESPN platform made them that much greater. Uh, I mean, the ESPN thing is just a boon for all of boxing. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Get, getting it back in front of, you know, you know, 
almost 100 million people again and, and you know the, the premier place where uh, sports programming is i mean that was absolutely a huge coup for for top rank um but let's uh let's let's get to some of your fighters because you have a pretty wide spectrum of fighters i mean you have you know your blue chippers and olympians um you still working with uh, darnell boone is that a guy you're still working with because you've you know, Darnell, yes. Um, Darnell's, you know, older now, and so he can't always fight everywhere. Um, but, yeah, uh, you know, we try to hook up Darnell with whatever we can. And he's uh, he's a client, but he's also sort of a friend of the family. He's somebody that, you know, Joe was, one of, Joe was my first employee, and Joe and I both really like him and care about him. And, um, you know, we try to do the best we can for him. Right. So, yeah, your your team, I, I guess let's let's do some shout outs to your team. That when you say Joe, you mean Joe Kiambo, uh match former right, matchmaker so, for Debella. That's right. He's been 14 years with Blue. Um and he's been with me almost since the beginning. Maybe I, I was maybe a year without anybody. And then uh, sometime after that, but not long afterwards, I brought in Tim Van Newhouse out of Cleveland who represented Ryan Martin at the time. And I just saw with Timmy, you know, like this young guy that boxing was his life. He loved everything about it. He was really smart. He's great at making relationships. And I thought, you know, I'm not going to live forever. And I, I, but I'd like the company too. And so I, I really wanted some like lifeblood, some young people in there too that were um, outstanding. And he's been great. They've both been great additions. So, uh, Especially in the beginning, Joe was unbelievably helpful. Uh, just even with with the matchmaking, he cut my uh, he cut my cost by like thirty five percent in the early years when we were buying a lot of fights. Which is not really something we do anymore, but you know, in like twenty fifteen, I, I bought eighty something fights. Wow! So if you lower the price of those by thirty five percent, you know, he was really paying his own way. I mean, that was nice. that was a boon for me to have a guy like that doing that. Absolutely, um, and then Timmy's just been great. Timmy makes great relationships with people. You know, he's a he's he's very good at letting people know he cares about them and making them care about him. And so he's got some really loyal, really loyal relationships, including me. You know, <laughs> I uh, I feel the same way about him that a lot of guys in boxing do. That's great. That's great. Well. Definitely wanted to get to to some of your fighters. Um, you've you've got so many great ones, and you know, and I, I definitely didn't mean to bury the lead here, but yeah, I mean, there's there's one who's been in in the news. Uh, well, there's actually been a couple who've been in the news. I wanted to get to uh, your world champion, uh, Ivan uh, Baranchik, the Beast. Um, you know who uh, who I actually uh, with uh, with fight promotions. Uh, I remember they were scouting him, and they they sent me a, a tape of him, and I, I just saw. Just what uh, a literal beast he was in the amateurs, and they're like, "Yeah, he's a little bit wild." I'm like, "Dude, there, you don't find this kind of energy in any fighter, <laughs> you know, in just any fighter. Right. You know, this kid is special. I mean, there, there's no one who's that ferocious. I mean, he's going to be a tremendous pro. So, um, you know, I'm glad to see that he's uh, that he's uh, become a world champ. But he's now, uh, you know, the the World Boxing Super Series announced this week that there's a scheduled semifinal fight between him and uh josh taylor one of the the higher seeds in the tournament one of the best uh, junior welterweights in the world for may 18th in glasgow um but you know a couple stories have surfaced that uh you've withdrawn baronchik from the uh uh wbss tourney because of the, the the money problems that they're having uh what can you tell us about 
what's been going on with the the World Boxing Super Series in season two and and the status of uh, Baronchik in the Junior Welterweight Tournament. As far as we're concerned, we've pulled out. Um, there are people behind the scenes trying to patch things up. Um, you know, God bless them if they do. We're we're open-minded people. We wanted to be in the tournament. Uh, Ivan wants to fight all the best people. Ivan Ivan doesn't care if you put a tank in front of him. Um, <laughs> but I um, there were so many red flags, and I don't want to badmouth these guys. I know they're going through a lot of troubles too. But there were a lot of red flags, and it was sort of fine if we were going to fight in February or maybe even early March because all right. There's red flags. Maybe there's going to be some trouble, but, you know, as long as they put the money in escrow a week before the fight or whatever, we lost a month. But then when they start talking about moving it to May or even June, I, you know, I just, I can't have him sit around three, four more months with no fight and, and me having very little confidence that the fight will actually happen. I mean, just from a business perspective, a guy who's been in business all my life, I, I, I don't think they're going to make it. Mm. And, you know, what do I do if, if they show up on May 11th and say to Josh and Ivan, by the way, we don't have the money to put in escrow. Both kids are going to want to fight. Right. And now I got to go to Switzerland and sue them to get paid. Right. Uh, it just doesn't make any sense. And, you know, I was very open in the beginning. I was like, you know, put the money in escrow. And they're like, no, it's too much. I'm like, we'll put 100000 in escrow and add a little every couple of weeks. You know, I was very reasonable about it. And nobody wanted to be reasonable. They want to talk about their watertight contract. And, uh, you know, God bless them. Uh, we're not going. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, it's crazy. Cause uh, I gotta say, go ahead, go ahead. They'll, uh, they'll either make a deal with us or, or or we'll go to court. But we're not, we're not gonna, we're not gonna be the guy. None of my clients are gonna be the guy you read about who got screwed over. Right, right, right. Yeah, I was gonna ask if it's still salvageable because you know I gotta say, I mean, I, I really love the concept of the World Boxing Super Series. I think it's one of the best things going in boxing, and you know, kind of a potential model for the sport. But you know, obviously, if there's fear of fighters just not getting paid, it's a massive problem. <laughs> I mean, you know, I mean, you, right. you know, it is. I, I love it too. I was so supportive of it. We were so excited to be in it. Um, I think it's a crime that TV hasn't picked it up, and that you know, I think they're visionaries. Like, this is not personal, right? right I mean, right. we think that we think the tournament's great. I just don't think they're going to have the money to pay us. And how do you say? I mean, he's 25 years old. He's, this kid is the hardest working. I mean, I love this kid so much. I can't even explain how much I love this kid. Him and his wife both are the hardest working, nicest people who just, just want to, to be great. And, I mean, that's what I wanted to be around in my, you know, aging years. Was, I want to be around greatness. I want to work with people who want to do something big. Right. And they're just the epitome of that. And so, you know, how do I tell this kid in May 11th, hey, you just spent four months training for something that's not going to happen? Or worse yet, uh, we go ahead and fight, and I say, hey, guess what? The, the wire never came. You're not going to get your $900,000 or whatever it is, you know? Right. I can't, I just, I can't, have, that, I can't have that situation. It's just, you know, it's, we can't do it. It's I would crazy. love to. I would love to. Right. But it, I can't. It's crazy. I'm, I'm really honestly surprised that there are any money problems with this tournament. I mean, they're signed with the zone, which has been paying like way above market for everything. I mean, did they not? Did they just cut like a horrible that, deal that's with the zone? what you think, but I don't think they got a great deal from the zone. Is what I hear. I, I don't know that. I, I, that may or not be factual, but I think 
I, I think it's a shame that the zone isn't giving up more, if that's true. And and I think it's a shame that nobody really picked it up in America. I mean, right. what else are these networks doing? You know? <laughs> right. That's it. I mean, not to pick up PBC, but every, any fight in this tournament is better than your normal PBC fight. Right. And, no, and I, people go back and watch, you know, Joe Blow against Danny Garcia and and somehow that's TV worthy. <laughs> and the two best guys, you know, uh, Regis Progress and Ivan Branchik won't be. I mean, it just seems uh, misguided. Absolutely. So, I mean, uh, to to my mind, yeah. I mean, it's it's you know, the great thing about the World Boxing Super Series is it just does what every other sport does. It takes the you know you you take the you right. know, you try and take the best and you put them in the playoffs and you have fights. Great fights that lead to the next great fight that leads to the ultimate fight where you have one champion in the division. I mean, I, I, to me, I just I don't get it that boxing hasn't like collectively gotten to that place. You know, we're still like, you know, maybe Agreed. fighting hard to make one or two big fights a year like that. It should be like every year there should be at least like three or four of those fights in a tournament to get there. To me, it's it's such a no-brainer. It's what every other sport has figured you out. Know, you, look at, you look at this 140 tournament also, the um, you know the so-called, and I'm making air quotes, the so-called weak link in the tournament with Terry Flanagan. Right. <laughs> who has one lost career. He's a former world champion. You know, and that's who Progress picked and made the eighth seed. Right. You know, that's the number eight seed, Terry Flanagan. That kid is awesome, you right. know? Right. So it was a great tournament. They never, they, you know, to their credit, everything was first class. They never chinsed on the quality of fighter. Like they never said, oh, we'll just let some stumble bum in because he's with, signed with us or something. Right. No, all these guys, they had, a, they had a real formula for who got in and who didn't. And it was the best guys. And so, I mean, I applaud them. I wish to God that this thing had all worked out. Um, you know, I, I just, I have a shitty job to do here. Right, yeah, yeah. I mean, listen, you got to protect your fighter uh, without question, especially now that he has a world title. I mean, you know, he can't be sitting. And and you know, my understanding is, you know, the the money in the tournament is very good, but you know, with the warring networks, like you said, if you go on the market, I don't know that that money or even superior money is is not there as well. So, you know, it's a tough choice. Well, and I can time. honestly say that has not influenced this, but it is true that when we first got into the tournament, it was probably paying more than we could have got, and now it's way less. So, right, right. But that has not influenced this, especially. And if it was going to influence somebody, it would have been me. I'm weaker than Ivan. Ivan, um, that's not what's important to him. I, Ivan, you know, wants the belt. Ivan wants uh, to fight the best. Um, but he does want to get paid. Yeah, so, absolutely. I mean, he's very adamant. He's very adamant about that, also. And, and you know, so it's just, it's just, it's a tough spot. Absolutely, and the onus, of course, as the manager, is on you that he does get paid. So yeah, you you've got to make that you got to right. make that call. So uh, we'll we'll speak right. of let's uh, you know I guess uh, you know we'll see how that plays out and hopefully it all works out for for all involved. Um, but uh, you know can't can't not talk to you and and talk about the the fighter who was on last night, Tiafimo Lopez. Um, just looked absolutely tremendous in what was you know a big step up fight. I mean. Diego Magdaleno had only yeah. lost, uh, his only two losses were in world title fights. Um, and and Tiafimo definitely looked devastating in, in, in getting him out of there. Although he, he's getting a little blowback for the for the celebration. Uh, you know, what, what, what was your take on that? So, you know, in the, in the heat of the moment, I didn't see the whole shovel thing. I only saw it later on TV. Um, I was sort of rushing to get in there. 
Uh, you know, there was a lot of back and forth, though, and I'm not saying we were innocent of anything. Um, you know, Junior, Teofimo's dad, you know, he can be mouthy, but you know, right before the fight, Magdaleno Sr. came over and, like, started a fight right in our corner, which I thought was weird. Uh, just, and so, you know, there was, there was a lot of chippiness and back and forth going on. Um, so, you know, it is what it is. I, I love Teofimo's celebrations. I probably would agree it's better when they don't necessarily come directly at the expense of the uh, opponent. Um, but, you know, people get paid a lot of money to fight him. And, you know, if, if you're paying attention, you know he's going to do something. Right, you know I mean? right, right. There is going to be a dance afterwards. <laughs> Everybody knows that now. And so, you know, to me, that's part of your paycheck. Right, um, right. You know, either beat him or expect that. I always remember we had a great basketball coach at the University of Columbia, Billy Tubbs. Oh, yeah. He's one of my all-time idols. And people used to say that Billy Tubbs ran up to the score and they'd bitch about him. You know, he beat somebody 120 to 50 and they'd be like, you know, what's wrong with you? How can you do that? Blah, blah, blah. And he would say, if you can run up on, if you can run up the score on me, do it. I won't complain. <laughs> right. That's kind of how I feel, you know. I mean, if you don't want us to dance, come out and beat us. Everybody said at the press conference they were going to beat us. Right. Um, you know, just do it, and nobody will be dancing. We'll be over there crying in our corner. I, I promise you, <laughs> the day somebody beats them, we'll all cry. That's kind of like you can have that. my word of honor. I will cry for you. <laughs> so uh, it won't be hard to shut us up. Just beat them. Exactly, exactly. That's the old T.O. thing, right? I mean, people were saying, oh, T.O. shouldn't be doing those dances in the end zone. They asked one of the Ravens about it. He's like, well, we just got to keep him out of the end zone then, right? <laughs> but, uh, but with the, as far as the strategy going forward with Tiafimo, I mean, he, he's, he's moving so quickly. He, you know, even now with you know, a world-class guy like Magdaleno, he just pretty much completely outclassed them. Um, on the broadcast last night, they were talking about him getting a title shot by end of year. Um, is that is that what you're looking at as well, or you know? Um, yeah, I mean, we we want to win a 35 title before he moves up, and he's not going to fight at 35 after this year. So yeah, we would really like to try to win one of the belts this year. Um, if nothing else, I know it sounds premature when you say this about a kid with 12 fights, but for legacy reasons. And that's important to him, which also shows sort of the maturity and the the vision of this kid. You know, he's thinking about those days when he's going to be able to say, you know, I want six belts instead of, you know, whatever. I mean, six, you know, weight classes. Um, and, you know, he has this vision uh, of, of what his future is going to be like. And so this is it for us at 35. So we would very much like to win one. I think he's proven already that there, there are definitely world champions out there that are not as you know good at him right now. I mean, uh, I mean he's definitely a world champion caliber fighter right now. Uh, if he had fought the guy, and I'm not taking anything away from Richard Comey, who's a wonderful kid, love him to death, great trainers, great people. Uh, but if 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 he fought that kid, he'd have knocked him out also. I mean, no right. doubt about it. So um, so clearly, you know, he could have won a world title last night if he had been all you know already maneuvered. Which right. he wasn't because he's had 11 fights. Right, you know, right, I mean, right. It's, it's hard to maneuver a guy into a mandatory with 11 fights <laughs> unless, you know, it's something like Lomachenko where you've won a half dozen gold medals and, you know, already a legend when you fight your first fight. So, I mean, you know, this kid came out of out of nowhere. We, we did a uh, one of my boring analytical studies that after that 11th fight, his new score on our – so we have a scoring system for pros also. Um 
probably, you know, you can imagine something like the box rec point system, except I think it's better because the box rec point system is based on, which is very good, by the way. I'm not knocking it. It's a brilliant piece of work there. But it, it doesn't translate across generations because how many fights there are brings more points in. So you have right. sort of a point deflation now when there's less fights. Um, for instance, you know, Joe Lewis fought 40-something guys that had over 1,000 points. Uh, Floyd Mayweather fought one. That doesn't mean that Floyd Mayweather never fought anybody good, right? It's just in his era, there were less points because there's less fights. Right. Our system uh, is much better than that in the sense that it, it grades you. It's, it's, it's sort of point neutral. Uh, it's, it's about the, sk- the strength of the opponent and what they've accomplished at that point, et cetera, et cetera. Anyway, his was shockingly high after the Mason Menard. I mean, like crazy high. And I've done this enough that I knew that was a crazy high number. So I asked uh, my, my little geek squad, I said, um, can you get me a list of all the guys who fought at lightweight since 1970 um, and, and what their score was through the first 11 fights? And he was number one. Uh, and the interesting thing about it, though, the score really tells you what somebody's accomplished, not how good they are, per se, right? Right. Uh, now, at the end of your career, what you've accomplished is how good you are. But on the way up, you know, because it's strength of schedule, a lot of it is what you've accomplished. And so the interesting thing is numbers two, three, and four were Howard Davis, Oscar De La Hoya, and Pernell Whitaker, who were all gold medalists. Wow. And so what this really told me is that Bruce and Brad at top rank believe so much in this kid that they've match made him like a gold medalist. Right, right. And that, that, that's what it says more than anything else, and which in some ways is even a bigger compliment than anything else because uh, with all due respect to all my great friends that are matchmakers, you know, those guys are legends. Um, they do an unbelievable job. And for them to believe that much in this kid, uh, it's, you know, it, that speaks volumes. So, I mean, I think he's going to be, uh, you know, and I, I'm a little superstitious. I hate to jinx things, but, I mean, I think he's going to be a guy that ends up being, you know, epic and remembered, you know, for generations. And uh, I really I really believe that. Um, and I think he can do anything he wants. I think he can fight all those guys right now, uh, which is crazy. I know. I mean, he's had 12 fights. I, I mean, like, I'm a guy that's grounded in mass. I don't get caught up in hyperbole or excitement or anything. So, uh, you know, it feels really weird for me to say that about a you know a guy. And I spent a lot of years trying to temper him and his dad's enthusiasm. You know, they they'd be like, "We're going to win a world title in two years." I'm like, "No, you're not. Nobody does that." And um, you know, the, look at the math. It's, it's only happened a couple of times. And then now look at him. You know, so uh, they're just amazing. I mean, the kid's amazing. Uh, I love him like he's my own son. Uh, you know, it, it's a great journey. It's, it's fun to be around. You know, I mean. It's, Absolutely. I don't know what's going to happen. Tremendously exciting fighter. I mean, I think he's been named like kind of prospect of the year almost two years in a row. He's, he's, he's been that good. But yeah. it's, it's interesting, too, yeah. because uh, Comey, um, you know, top rank really wants to, you know, load the titles up on, on Lomachenko. I think Lomachenko wants to be undisputed. But they've got that really tight window for Comey to come right back from this fight and, and fight Lomachenko on, on the 12th. And it seemed like Comey was kind of right. hedging when he was in the ring, <laughs> and he also seemed to ding up his knuckle a little bit on his on his right hand. So uh, right. I'm thinking, well, you, you know, know maybe he doesn't make that. With them, but yeah, I, you know, I honestly don't know anything about it. We shared a locker room with him, and we were excited for him, but there was no volume on our TV in there, and, ah. and I watched it from the locker room. So 
I, I didn't hear anything he said. I honestly have no intelligence. Yeah, he wasn't about that. They uh, were they were all like, "Oh, you're fighting Lomachenko next in April," and he's kind of like, "Uh, let me enjoy this win first. And then and then they started talking about his knuckle. The doctor was looking at it. So, so right. let, let's say he misses that April fight, and and Loma takes another fight. Would if Top Rank offered that to you next, would you take uh, Comey for uh, for Lopez? Absolutely, <laughs> and that's no knock on him. But right, I mean he's a great champion. Uh, you know he's a class kid. Uh, that's exactly the kind of person that Teofimo wants to be in the ring with. Absolutely, that'd be a um, tremendous fight, man. Yeah. I, I would pay to be ringside to that one. That would be an absolute. Uh, while it lasted, it would be tremendous. Absolute. I mean, Comey's an action yeah. fighter with a lot of so, power, and so is Teofimo. Th- yeah, that's an understatement. Um, <laughs> Comey is definitely an action. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he gets, uh, he gets hit a lot more yeah, than Tufimo. It, it would be a great, it would be a great fight. We would love to do it. Um, but he'll really, you know, they've talked about Pedraza some. We'd love that. I think that's a great contrast in style. I think it'd also be great to see, you know, how he did him did with him compared to Lomachenko. Obviously, everybody talks about him and Lomachenko, uh, which I'm all for. I just want to get paid lots and lots of money for it. Right. Um, right. You know, I, I don't want to get a situation where we fight a guy. You know, I think 20 years, if you look back from all this, you'll say, well, that was a fight of two titans. Right. And I'd hate to be the dummy that got paid 500000 for it because I let us, you know, fight it before before anybody realized we were a titan. Right. So, you know, I kind of want to establish our titanism a little bit and then get paid for fighting Lomachenko. But not everybody believes that way. Uh, Teofimo's dad would like to fight him tomorrow night. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, He's much more glory and uh, much more involved in the glory of his son than the money, which is awesome, by the way. I mean, I love right. that's one of the things I love about his dad is that uh, in the end, the money is just trinkets for him. He, he's he's on a mission to prove that his son is the greatest fighter that ever lived, and uh, you know he may do it. Right, right. Which is, I tell him all the time. You know, he's always like, "You never believed me. I told you my son was the greatest fighter." And I said, "You know, Junior." Every dad I meet tells me that. You just happen to be the one that was right. <laughs> <laughs> that is hilarious. Well, let, listen, let, let me, I mean, I talk uh, Tiafimo and, and uh, Branchik with you all day, but you've got uh, so many other fighters I, I'd, I'd like to get to. But uh, just, uh, I mean, another prospect who is more under the radar, even though he was an Olympian, and every time I've seen him, I'm extremely impressed by him, and that's uh, Charles Conwell. Um, you just look tremendous as a pro so far. Talk to me about uh, Charles's progress and uh, what we can look forward to in, in his next couple of fights. Well, he hurt his hand last time out, which okay. was a little bit of an issue. Um, so he, he he was supposed to fight March 2nd, uh, and he's going to miss that. Um, but I think, I think you're going to see Charles now in bigger venues and more on TV. And I think, uh, you know, that... The Travis Scott fight, you know, I, I thought we had so much momentum on it, and for whatever reason, we didn't get a fight, you know, right away after that. But you know, Scott was nineteen and three, and uh, Charles was like seven and zero. Oh. And I mean, he was nineteen and three in America too. You know, it's not like they just flew in some kid from you know Uruguay or something. Right, right. And uh, you know, Charles knocked him out in the second with a body shot. I mean, yeah, he's you know, devastating. He's awesome to watch. It, it, in fact, that was one of the proudest nights of my career because, you know, I got these three kids in there that I love, Conwell and Eric DeLeon and then Teofimo. 
And first, Conwell knocked that guy out, and I think, well, that that's going to steal the show. I mean, not only did he knock him out, I stand and stood there. Um, what's his name? Scott. He was on his knee for uh, I think it was forty eight seconds. Wow! Like he could not stand up. That's Oof. how bad that shot was. Oof. And um, he, he just couldn't even get his air. And you know, there's nothing wrong with that guy. He's a good fighter. Wow. Um, so then Eric DeLeon comes on. You know, he gets tangled up, he gets called a knockdown, but he falls in the first round, knockdown, whatever you want to say. But um, he tore his rotator cuff. Oh, wow. That happened. Now he's, down two, now he's down two points, and he's got a torn rotator cuff. Wow. He fights the rest of that fight with one hand, wins all nine rounds against a really tough opponent. You cannot fall in love with a kid like that, right? Absolutely. I mean, the Absolutely. toughness of that kid. So now I'm like, well... Jeez, I, he, you know, even upstage Charles, like, who does that? He fights with one hand and, and wins nine straight rounds. And then, of course, Teofimo comes in and just beats the hell out of William Silva and stole the whole show. So it was, it was an awesome night, you know, that, um, although Teof, you know, I spent the whole night in the hospital because Teofimo broke his hand and uh, uh, Eric uh, tore his rotator cuff that night. So it was, it was a hard night, but, right. but it was exciting because those are three three really special kids. Charles actually, on the analytics of that, that crop, he scored the highest of all the Olympians. Oh, wow. Um, I think Teofimo was second. Shakur was fourth. I know everybody was Shakur, 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 but, uh, and he's a great fighter. I'm not saying anything. His, his score was off the charts. But it was fourth. Um, I think little Gary Russell was third. Uh, and then another one of my clients, Antonio Vargas, was fifth. Uh, but they were all like, all those guys were off the charts how high they scored. I mean, wow. Uh, that would have been a great Olympic team. They were just so young. You know, right. They were just babies. Absolutely. All those kids were 17, 18, 19 years old. Um, and they were fighting guys who were basically professional amateurs. Right. So, I mean, the guy Charles lost to, we represent, Vikas Krishan. I was going to ask about him. Olympics. He had 300 amateur fights, you know. Well, he beat Spence in, in 2012, and then it got overturned. Right, and, it, right. and he beats Conwell in the next Olympics. Right. So, obviously, this guy can fight. Right. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. No, he's... I, you know, it's sort of like Clarissa Shields. You know, I always say, you know, people are comparing her to Jackie Robinson. I said, you should be comparing her to Will Chamberlain because... Right. She's already the best female fighter ever before she's ever fought a pro fight. Mm, you know, and that's mm. kind of how Wilt was when he came out of Kansas. He was already the best basketball player ever, and he'd never he had never played pro basketball yet. Right. And that's that's how um, Vikas is. He's the best Indian fighter before he ever had a pro fight. He was the best Indian fighter <laughs> ever. And um, and you know they got 1.4 billion people. They have an economy that's supposed to be bigger than ours by 2030. Mm. And he's a national, and they have no competing sports. He's a national hero there. Right. I mean, we're hoping someday we'll we'll get a rematch with Errol Spence there for a couple of hundred million. <laughs> you know, cause, uh, so we're talking. If, we're talking. We're talking about Vikas Krishan, who's who was uh, his junior middleweight. He signed with Top Rank, right, and and he represented India in the right. 2012 and, and 2016 Olympics. Right. Yeah, I, I think he's gonna be a big star. He can he can fight. I mean, like he can do it all. Um, he's he's extremely smart. He plays chess all the time. And he um, he understands he's making a transition from the from the amateurs to the pros. Like he gets it. He's really cognizant of that. And you know he knows that it's a different it's a different sport, and that he's got a lot of habits. He's got to consciously change. Right. And you know, I, I have found you know I've worked in with athletes from every sport, and by far the greatest correlation between success and intelligence is in boxing. 
Hmm. Um, a lot of these guys are uneducated, but none of them are dumb. All, all of all of my clients are really smart. Uh, the other guys that I meet in the business that aren't clients of mine that are champions, very smart guys. Um, you just you just don't meet a lot of dumb successful boxers, in my opinion. Uneducated, yes. Right. Um, no. Right. Uh, they're, Absolutely. They're very smart. Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. So, and he's got that. His intellect is off the charts. Mm. Um, well, he's twenty six now. Yeah, he's twenty six. Right. Are you gonna you gonna try and put him maybe on on like the Tiafimo path where he's he's moving a little quicker than than your average right. prospect? Yeah, I mean, you know, in the end, uh, I, I've grown to have so much faith in, in Brad Goodman uh, and and Bruce Trampler that you know I, we're going to do whatever they suggest. Um, but yeah, that would be my inclination is that we want to move him up there pretty quick. I. There's no doubt in my mind he can handle all these guys. He's just kind of got to pick up some things along the way in the transition. And, you know, there's just, you know, how there are. There are things out there, different styles, opponents, and different cultures. And you're just going to have to catch on to that, how different groups fight, how different people fight. Right. And, you know, so he's he's going to need a few fights to figure all that out. But, yeah, I, w- I would think he's on the fast track. So he's based in the U.S. now. He's training with uh, Shakur Stevenson's grandfather. Is that right? Uh, Wally? Yeah, Wally Moses. Right. And um, who's a big amateur trainer uh, and also does very well with some pros. Um, He's training with him out of Newark. He still goes home quite a bit to see his wife, but he'll come over here for months at a time. And he's going to be on April 20th with uh, Teofimo on the Amir Khan uh, Terrence Crawford uh, undercard. Oh, okay. So Tiafimo's so, already slated. As well as Shakur. So Tiafimo's yeah. already slated. Going to be on that card. Okay. Tiafimo, all of them. Yeah. Okay. So with 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 uh, that fight for for Tiafimo, uh, any idea who uh, who is? I mean, I assume another step up, or are you gonna like just get him a win and and then go from there? You know, I think it's gonna be a step up. That's a pay per view show, and I I think they'll want to do somebody real. Um, I have. You know, I know in that one story Bob said Pedraza, but I, I, I feel like Pedraza will be later this year. Um, but I, I don't honestly know. We haven't had a chance to talk about it yet. But, um, you know, not to not to be repetitive or a sycophant, I have to admit, I disagree with people about, you know, who my guys should fight all the time. I've, I've never disagreed with Brad. Brad never calls me and I'm like, oh, that guy sucks. I'm always like, that's brilliant. Let's do it. <laughs> so, um, you know, in the end, I can say with probably 99% certainty, whatever Brad thinks is, is uh, I'll probably go along with him on it. Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. Uh, I mean, you can't... Done a, they've done a marvelous job so far. I mean, right. Look at this, where this kid is and 12 fights. I would have almost told you, uh, you know, being a mathematician, I would have told you that it was mathematically impossible for this to have occurred. So, <laughs> um, it shows how much I know. <laughs> Well, you did mention uh, another uh, 2016 Olympian who's with top rank, a bantamweight, uh, Antonio Vargas. Uh, I see he won uh, the NABF belt his last fight. Uh, how do you think he's developing, and, and what's next for him? I think he's doing great. You know, he's he's fought through a lot of injuries, um, which I think is, you know, maybe his overall performance on paper doesn't look as impressive. But he's never been challenged. I don't know that he's lost a round yet. Um I could look back at the judges' scores. Maybe somebody gave him a pity round once here or there, but uh, he's totally dominated all these guys. 
So this is a kid at 16 and 17. He won national Golden Gloves. He won the Pan Am Games at 17, which no American had done in over like a decade. Right. He made the Olympic team at 17 or 18. This is a special, special kid. Um, and I, you know, I, I would bet anything right now that he ends up a world champion. Um, now, unfortunately, Americans don't pay as much attention to those uh, weights. But, you know, he, he, a little bit of it is like Teofimo, who they grew up together, by the way. They're both Florida kids who grew up together, you know, did okay. all those golden gloves together and worked out together a lot. Uh, Antonio thinks about his legacy also. And if he's going to win belts in a lot of classes, it makes sense for him to start at 18. And okay. this was his choice, you know. Um, but I, I think he'll he'll win at 18 and move up. And, um, you know, I think he at least... I, I mean, I think he'll someday he'll be a star at 26, even. I don't know about 30 ever, because he's just not that big. But um, he's a tremendous fighter and a, and a wonderful kid. Absolutely. Uh, great wife who was also, his wife was um, on Team USA for years, and they have a beautiful baby. And they're just, you know, the kind of kids you want to root for. I mean, they're out there just making it happen and doing it and uh, working really hard. So, uh, yeah, I think, I think only great things will happen for Antonio Vargas. Absolutely. Just let me ask you about a couple more guys here. I don't want to keep you all day, but uh, I, which I could. Yeah, but uh, um, no Brian Ceballo, um, who was with uh, Tom Loeffler, welterweight, seven and zero, three KOs. Right. Um, yeah, with, right. with it's it, it's interesting with Tom because uh, you know he's he's three sixty promotions. He's kind of got his own like club show going out in LA that he's trying to build. So talk to me about working with Tom and and what do you think of uh, Brian's progress so far. Well, you know, I, I have to tell you, Tim Van Newhouse has the real relationship with Tom. I know Tom. I talk to Tom from time to time. But that's Tim's relationship. They're very close. Um, uh, he really brokered that deal, you know, and I, I, I worked on it, obviously. But, you know, behind the scenes, he did all the talking with Tom. And so that's really his relationship. But Tom, you know, from my time around, besides being extremely classy, is a very smart guy. Right. And I don't see him being unsuccessful at anything. I mean, I, I think what he's trying to do now will be successful, and it's really well done. I've been to several of those Hollywood shows now, and there's a lot of celebrities there. It's a, it's a very hip New York feeling. In fact, it's it, it, it's something like I'm it's something like that is what I'm always suggesting to Lou. He should be doing in New York, you know, like at Webster Hall or somewhere like that. Right. Um, it, it's a really cool atmosphere, and you know, we were talking about smart fighters uh, you know nobody's smarter than brian ceballo i mean that kid off the charts intellect uh wonderful kid um you know just love him to death and uh, i'll tell you a funny story about him though uh even though i am for gay marriage i do love chick-fil-a and uh, <laughs> so when I was, I, I was recruiting him still but it was pretty much definite that he was going to sign with us and we were at some tournament and uh, he said, do you, do you want to have a pregame meal with me? And I said, sure. I said, where do you want to go? And he goes, I always go to Chick-fil-A for my pregame, my pre-fight meal. And I said, wait, are you recruiting me or am I recruiting you? <laughs> like, uh, to recruit me a little Chick-fil-A. But um, he's just a great kid. He's one of my very favorites. And, um, you know, he's adjusting the pro game. He spent a lot of time in the amateurs where he was extremely successful. Um but he's so smart that I think um, I think he's doing really well now. But I also think he's one of those guys that something's going to click, and he's just going to go to a whole other level. 
Mm. Um, and and I think I think I think he's gonna be very special. And I would give more than even money that he's the world champion. Gotcha, gotcha. Um, so two guys that you have with uh, real deal promotions: uh, Eric Bentley, real Vander Holyfield, obviously real deal promotions. Right. Um, first, what I mean, what's your understanding of the status of Real Deal? I mean, I've been hearing they've also been having some money problems. I mean, are, are they still an active entity, or what is what is going on with uh, with well, Real Deal? They haven't breached any of our contracts, so you know they're active. Um, obviously, you know things aren't perfect, uh, but they never are. Right. Uh, I think you know the company they might have bit off a little bit too much in the beginning. Um, but I feel like, you know, there's been a little bit of a vulture aspect in boxing, you know, like, oh, look at them, they didn't make it, let's go eat them. And I, I think it should be the other way around. I mean, at this point, boxing needs some more competition, and we need more promoters, and we need more people that want to do shows. Um, you know, if we're going to keep, I think we're on a big upswing. But right. I, I actually think more promoters helps that, not hurts it. I, I think people have the competition thing wrong. Um I so, completely agree with I'm you. Rooting for, um, <laughs> they're, they're working with their investors um, to do a second round that I think is imminent. So, I, you know, like we used to say in politics, I'm cautiously optimistic. <laughs> um, but well, they that, haven't breached any of our kids. And, uh, and, in fact, they've done great. I mean, you know, Eric's given his heart and soul. And, of course, Kevin O'Sullivan's with them, who's one of my all-time favorite people in boxing. Right. Great and guy. so... You know, we're standing by him. Great, great. Just, just a couple more guys who who have yet to make their debuts. Uh, when I talked to Joe, he said, you know, if you, if you want to get uh, David talking, uh, you know, ask him about Otha Jones the <laughs> third, who uh, yeah. you just recently signed uh, out of Toledo, Ohio. Yeah, that's my boy. I, I love Otha Jones the third. I mean, <laughs> that's a kid. We had we had a thing in baseball called good faith and it doesn't mean like a guy's a pretty boy it means like you could go to some game and try this the next time you go to any kind of game of people you don't know um and you can kind of look as soon as they walk out on the field or the court or whatever it is who the best guy there is it's just they're comfortable in their own skin uh, there's like a little bit of glow around them other people sort of give them deference you know like that alpha male deference this kid had it, man. And so I first saw him in videos, actually, on YouTube. And he was like 14 years old, and he's doing these ridiculous pull-ups and everything, and he's just got muscles like you just never saw in this little tiny kid. And then you'd see him, you know, working out with the mitts and everything, and you're like, holy cow, who's that kid? So then I, I went to a junior tournament, which I'd always sworn I wouldn't do. I'm like, I'm not going to watch anybody that's not a elite yet. But I went to watch a bunch of 16, 15-year-olds fight, which was unbelievable. It was one of the best tournaments I ever went to. I'm not knocking Ryan Garcia, but he was there, and I had him 17th on the prospect list. That's wow. how deep this was. Like, wow. I'm not trying to insult him. Like, Little Otha was there, Mark Castro was there, Leon Lawson was there, Keyshawn Davis was there, mm. Ryan Garcia, Brian Vasquez. You know, I mean, Brian Lua, not Brian Vasquez, Brian Lua, Richard Torres, who's definitely going to be on the Olympic team, uh, Troy Isley, who'll probably be on the Olympic team. All these. I mean, it was Atif Ogleton. Um, it was one of the best tournaments I ever saw in my life. Mm. And um, they, uh, Logan Yoon was there. Um, right. I mean, just all the top prospects now were there. Joey Spencer uh, and Tiger Johnson. Anyway, I'll stop naming names. But um, <laughs> Otha, was, he was the big dog. 
Mm. And after that, I was just like, I, I have to sign this kid. And luckily, I've been friends with his dad for a long time. His dad uh, trains Conwell. So, I, you know, I had access. And um, and I just uh, I think the kid's going to be one of the greatest fighters. I really do. I mean, at one point, he won 21 tournaments in a row, not fights. Wow. Uh, he had some losses during there in, in international stuff. But in, in, in U.S. tournaments, he won 21 in a row. That's insane. Um, yeah, you're just like, who does that? And, you know, from as a little kid, I've seen him, you know, sparring all kinds of adults and just, you know, beating them up. Uh, there's a trainer out of Cleveland who trains Antonio Nieves, uh, Joe Del Guy. He's the first guy who told me about Conwell. Even before Conwell won National Golden Gloves as a baby, he told me how great he was. And, you know, he's like, I just had a guy in my gym you got to find and recruit. And he did the same thing the first time he saw Otha Jones. He's like, you got to find it. You got to get that kid. I mean, he's <laughs> off the hook. Yeah, so and, many. And, you know, Joe's got a good eye for that. That's great. I mean, there's so many great fighters from the Midwest. I mean, just what I've seen of him. I mean, he's aggressive kid, throws great combinations. And, you know, uh, you know, there's a lot of guys who throw combinations. But his accuracy and his power is just really, really impressive. Yeah, he's going to be a kid to watch for sure. Well, I and he's unhittable. I mean, he's right. got that Shakur thing where he's just got that sixth sense. You can't hit him. Right. Um, you know, so he, we're very, very excited about it. I mean, you know, even the guy that beat him, his only, the, what broke his streak was as, as the youngest kid at National Golden Gloves, he lost in his second fight. Um, and the kid at the time was an unheard of kid from Hawaii. And I felt like he got robbed a little bit because instead of grading him in the fight, they graded him against what he was supposed to be. Right. But even that kid now is the number number two guy on Team USA. Mm. So mm. even that kid was a lot better than we thought he was at the time. You know, I mean, there's no shame in that loss. Um, yeah, he's just a special kid. And by the way, you know, Ohio has three Golden Glove franchises. They got Toledo, Cleveland, and Cincinnati. If it was just one Ohio franchise, you'd never uh, see these guys. I mean, <laughs> they, they would. They, well, yeah, that's one thing. Yeah, you you wouldn't see half these guys, but also <laughs> they would be so dominant. Right, right, right. Uh, Cleveland, Cleveland, and Cincinnati alone frequently put a couple, three guys in the finals, and then if sometimes when Toledo has a good team, they will also. So it's um, you know, it's very competitive in Ohio. We have a lot of clients in Ohio, and and you know, Toledo is also basically a, a suburb of Detroit, and we have a lot of guys from Detroit. Um, we've got our drill homes from there with an Olympic alternate. Uh, we got a lot of guys. I yeah, DeLeon. Who's a national Golden Club. Uh, yeah, Eric DeLeon, who's one of my all-time favorite people. And, I mean, we just we have a lot of kids from Detroit, that, and it's a great place for boxing. That whole little Detroit-Toledo beltway is, um, and Cleveland-Cincinnati, they're, they're just great boxing towns. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, let me ask you about one more guy. Um, speaking of great boxing okay. towns, a kid out of Philly. Um, former uh, Juco baseball pitcher, which I'm sure was attractive to you, Sonny Kanto, who's going to be uh, making his debut uh, February 8th on Raging Babes card in Philly. Uh, Top Rank has already signed him. Uh, tell tell the people about Sonny Kanto. Uh, this is, he's just a great kid. I, um, you know, he's got power. He's one of those guys that translates it to be a way better pro than he was an amateur, and he was a pretty damn good amateur. Um, He's got huge power. He's the real Rocky, you know, in that he's he's Italian uh, American from South Philly. Unbelievable personality, big smile, great kid. Um, 
I'll tell you what I really fell in love with him, though, and this has got nothing to do with the analytics, although he scored very high. And I, I always liked him. I liked his family a lot. But he fights Nikosi Solomon at National Gold and Gloves, and Nikosi was sort of a, the hot shot at the time. He was on Team USA and whatever. And um, he beats him badly. I think he gave him two standing eight counts, beat him badly. But when it was all done, he looked at him and he goes, you didn't think I could fight, did you? <laughs> like, and I understood that rage. Like, that's almost something Teofimo would do, you know? Because, like, that you've, you've always been overlooked and nobody took you seriously. And now you're out here beating up the guy that's got the, you know, Olympic jacket and everything. Right. And I got it, you know? And, and that's, like I said, I got in this business to be around people that want to be around great, that want to be great. Right. You know, I want to be around people that want to really accomplish something and be awesome. And when he did that, I was like, I got I to sign this kid. It's just too cool. I mean, like, you know, he's not, he wasn't trying to be mean to Nikosi. Right, right, he right. He just had to get that out of him. You know, <laughs> that nobody took me seriously. And look at this, what I just did. And I loved it. I mean, the kid's going to be great. Uh, I would expect big, big things from him. He's got huge power. He knocked some poor kid out from Nevada at National Golden Gloves in the first round. And you know, with headgear, the kid was out. He was down for like a minute. I mean, it, it was actually like, it wasn't funny. You know, right. But it was, impre- it was impressive. Right. You, know, you just don't see people do that. You don't see guys get knocked out at National Golden Gloves. Here and there, you'll see it happen. But most of, most of the so-called KOs at National Golden Gloves, some kid just gets overwhelmed. Right, right. The referee um, can't defend in. himself. Right. Right. But you don't just see a guy with the headgear and those big poofy gloves like that just get knocked cold right. and not be able to get up. I mean, it just doesn't happen. Right. right so, right. you know, it, 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 a kid we don't represent um, – but it's with top rank that I always loved, Joseph Ordorno. Mm-hmm. He he had that kind of thing. Mm. Sixteen years old, he knocked down a couple of guys at National Golden Gloves, and you know he's like, "Holy shit! How does a sixteen-year-old do that?" Right? Right. So that's that's very attractive because one of the things our analytics told us is the kind of guys that can do stuff like that are much better pros. Oh, absolutely! Um, knockdowns, knockouts, that kind of thing means means a lot, and and amateurs it translates way more than you know, like beating a nobody. Um, so, you know, we look for that and that's why I, I've always thought Ordonio, Ordonio was their steal from that recruiting crop. I mean, guy kid, I think is going to be really special. I, I, you know, we, we don't have anything to do with him, but, um, unfortunately, but I, he's going to be great. Yeah. He's kind of gone under but the radar. Like that, he's bigger. Yeah. Ador- he won't be for long. You got to remember, he's just a baby. That's you know, it. He turned like pro 18, so 19, young. Yeah. Out. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, yeah they turn him pro. So really they're going to bring him along at a different speed because of his youth, and, right. and that's the smart play. I mean, that's that's what I'd want if I had him. Absolutely, oh. absolutely, absolutely. Well, just wanted to mention Otha Jones signed. You you put him with uh, with uh, Matchroom and, and Eddie Hearn. So uh, Matchroom, he's going to debut at Verona March 9th. Okay, in, in uh, Verona, New York. Excellent, excellent, excellent. Well, David, I really appreciate your time. And, you know, going back to uh, that article I read about you, you said your goal was to have half of the rated fighters in boxing. And it, it sounds like uh, you're kind of on your way there with this uh, crop of guys you've, you've been uh, uh, signing the last couple of years. So I uh, really wish you the best. Did I luck. really say that? It <laughs> sounds a little, uh, a little like hubris there, but okay. I'll stand by. Maybe the interview was at the bar. I don't know, David. I don't know when it, when it took yeah, place. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> but I really, right. really appreciate it. Well, thank your you, Kurt. And uh, good, good luck with everybody in the future. All right. Thanks a lot, buddy. Talk to you soon. All right, man. Take care. Bye.
And that will do it for another edition of the Boxing Esquire podcast. I'd really like to thank David McWater for taking the time out to speak with me. Um, if you like the podcast, please leave a comment or a rating on iTunes, Stitcher, Audioboom, SoundCloud, or wherever you access the Boxing Esquire podcast. And proud to announce that we're now on Spotify, so you can check us out there. And I'd really appreciate it. Uh, any comments or ratings, because it helps new listeners find the podcast. And until next time, so long, everybody.